African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the rights to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. That's what we're all about. We're not ashamed of that. Well, this is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Moshatama. We look at uh, the big stories on the African continent, the big themes that uh, really the African continent is narrating upon. And uh, today we're coming almost to the end of... Uh, uh, Heritage Month and the 24th of September is celebrated as National Heritage Day in the Republic of South Africa. You know, heritage is such a broad term. It kind of, when you think of it, you can think of archaeology, you can think of literature, you can think of so many, many things. And we just want to really put it down and how important is heritage, especially from this diversity spectrum that we're going to be exploring with our various guests today. But hey, we've got Amanda Machaka standing by. She's going to give us our news update. Top stories. Kenya's Supreme Court did not find evidence of vote rigging in the country's presidential elections. Thousands protest in Togo as demands for the removal of President Fornia Sembe rise and Germany gears up for elections due in three days. Good morning. Kenya's Supreme Court says it did not find evidence of vote rigging in the country's presidential elections and that no official of the Electoral Commission was criminally culpable of the illegalities and irregularities that led to the nullification of the polls. The court also said it did not find any offense committed by President Uhuru Kenyatta. Chief Justice David Maraga, however, said in a detailed ruling that illegalities and irregularities committed during the polls affected the final outcome of the elections. Although the petitioners claimed that various electoral offenses were committed by officials of the first respondent, that is IBC, no evidence was placed before us to prove that allegation. What we saw uh, in evidence was a systematic institutional problem and we were unable to find specific fingerprints of individuals who may have played a role in the commission of illegalities. We are therefore unable to impute any criminal intent or culpability on either the first or second respondent or any other commissioner or a member of the first respondent. We are simply unable to find any evidence of misconduct on the part of the third respondent. The prayer is therefore disallowed. 
Thousands of protesters have taken to the streets of Togo's seaside capital after the ruling party asked supporters to march at the same time as planned opposition protests demanding the removal of President Foreign Yasimbe. The rival demonstrations in Lome came a day after the opposition boycotted a vote on constitutional reform, which would have included a presidential term limit, arguing that it was a ploy to let Nyasimbe remain in power till 2030. The opposition wants the limit to apply retroactively so that Nyasimbe, who has been in power since 2005, could not run again in 2020. His father, Nyasimbe Iadema, ruled from 1967 till his death in 2005. Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir has pressed on with a government campaign to collect arms from tribes in Waton Tafur, where a devastating conflict has killed thousands and displaced millions. Al-Bashir, wanted by the International Criminal Court on charges of genocide and war crimes related to the conflict in Tafur, is touring the region ahead of a U.S. decision on October 12 on whether to permanently lift a decades-old trade embargo on Sudan. Tafur has been awash with weapons since 2000. When ethnic minority rebels took up arms against President Al Bashir's Arab dominated government, accusing it of economic and political marginalization. The United Nations says the conflict has killed about 300,000 people and displaced more than 2.5 million, most of them stuck in large camps. The newly established People's Tribunal on Economic Crime in South Africa aims to eradicate corruption and state capture with the help of everyday citizens. At its launch, the tribunal spoke of the various commissions of inquiries over the past year and how little they have done to move South Africa forward. The first hearing is set for November when the public will be called upon for information on pre- and post-apartheid era arms deal. Kelly Cropman is a member of the tribunal. This is not a judicial or, or legislatively mandated tribunal. This is civil society coming together to create awareness and air out these matters in the public space that is not necessarily something that's been done before. To enable the public to, to participate and engage with these economic crimes and understand where they've come from and also give people an opportunity to come forward with information that they've had that they haven't been able to air. And finally, with only three days left before the German elections, locals in the capital believe are hopeful the voting process will go well. Incumbent Chancellor Angela Merkel is hoping that she will return as leader of government. Sophie Mugwena reports. Germany is a country with a strong history. And as it goes to the polls, Angela Merkel is expected to make history and return as the most powerful woman leader. Her party, the Christian Democratic Union, is currently leading the race According to the local opinion polls, Merkel has managed to shrug off the criticism from those who did not agree with her policy on refugees. She opened German's borders in 2015 to more than one million refugees. But the CDU is unlikely to win with outright majority. Germany might be heading for another coalition government. Recapping your top stories, Kenya's Supreme Court did not find evidence of vote rigging in the country's presidential elections. Thousands protest in Togo as demands for the removal of President Foreign Yasimbe rise and Germany gears up for elections due in three days.
Awesome. Thank you so much, Amanda, for that news update. Thank you for joining us here on African Dialogue. Remember, Channel Africa, we're broadcasting on DSTV, on Channel 802, on our audio bouquet. You can also stream us live. Don't forget that. It's on www.channelafrica.co.za. If you're listening to us outside the continent, in the USA specifically, you can call us on 605-475-1711. At no extra cost, uh, you can listen to our program. Well, today we're coming to the end of uh, the month and Heritage Month is such an important month, not just for South Africa but for the continent. We know today is a big day in terms of South Africa celebrating this particular day. I'm not. I'm seeing a lot of stuff also happening outside our SABC studios where they're celebrating heritage and what it stands for and how important it is. But heritage is a word that can be so misunderstood because it's so multifaceted and it's so huge in terms of even how important it is, not just for our current generations, but also those uh, to come after us. I mean, Africa's heritage is another issue where the preservation of it is really much questioned. Scholars suggest that the origins of humankind have started in Africa, but really in terms of monetizing that, in terms of preserving that particular history, Africa still has a long way to go. And uh, when we speak about also this cultural aspect of things, when it comes to heritage it's so broad i mean you think of creative expressions such as music such as live performance such as historical inheritance hey don't forget that even language itself yesterday we were speaking about language and how actually it's uh, very important in terms of accessing even privilege uh, the food we eat let's not forget about that and also the idea of popular memory now we're going to speak to our guests today just to look at how important heritage is are we doing enough to preserve it and also the fact that africa also has to start monetizing heritage making it actually a capital uh, for the continent uh, joining us in our studio already we've got the head of partnership at the african world heritage fund uh, suyabu avarisu who's joining us uh, in our studios on the line we've got hazel Buerta, who's the head of conservation uh, at the south african institute of heritage sciences and uh, Finally, but not least, uh, we'll also uh, be joined by Dr. Julian Benoit, who's the postdoctoral fellow at the Evolutionary Studies Institute at Wits University. Well, you are in studio, uh, Mr. Varisu. Thank you for giving us your time. In terms of heritage, I've kind of highlighted the various forms of heritage. But in terms of heritage itself, from a post-colonial aspect in Africa, and also looking at contemporary changes that are taking place in the landscape of what heritage means, what does it mean to you, sir? Thank you very much, and uh, thank you to you and your listeners. Sure. Uh, heritage is uh, basically three things. Heritage is first what we inherit from our ancestors, our parents, our relatives. First step. Second step, heritage is what we cherish, we conserve, we give value to, we use also. Second step. And heritage is also what we intend to pass to our kids, to the future generations, you see. So it's basically what we, it can be cultural heritage, it can be nature, it can be livelihood, it can be values, it can be the way we see it, the way we talk, language is like you are saying it. But we need to take care of that 
use it and then we pass it to the next generation you know let's move this conversation forward mm. just a little bit i want us to fast forward and not mm. to just speak on the generalities of it but looking at africa right now and the challenges when it comes to heritage when it comes to buildings when it comes to our languages themselves mm-hmm. music all forms of heritage in, term, in terms of that we've struggled in terms of making that some form of capital we've always tried t- to actually do that but that's where we kind of uh, really really have a difficult time we'll either export our our paintings and that's where they get more monetized outside the the continent it seems like africa is grappling in a way on how to actually forge uh, heritage as a form of capital something actually to really really progressively make it an economy of sorts yes i think uh, uh I partly agree with you, but uh, there are a lot of dynamics so. in Africa. In heritage is actually an investment to create a richness, and it's a resource for development. And uh, I'm myself, I'm from an organization that we call African World Heritage Fund, and the idea of creating that organization, the, the organization, that organization was created both by AU, African Union, and UNESCO, as a strategy to invest, to find ways so that heritage can be used as a tool for development in Africa. And, and how's that program going? How are you guys facilitating that in itself? We have a number of uh, capacity building trainings uh, and activities. Both We are covering all the African continent, but we are hosted by the South African government. We also provide grants so that... Uh, stakeholders and uh, government implement their own projects. It can be about conservation. It can also be about generating resources for local communities, but using heritage is a sustainable way. For instance, uh, if I just take uh, some example in South Africa here, last year we had a youth forum where we gathered about 50 young people who speak English at Robben Island and uh, at the youth forum, which was a gathering to, for them to understand what heritage means and things like that, they also came up with a number of ideas that are being implemented currently in a number of countries. So we are also trying to pass on, you see, the skills that some people have to the young generation in a, as an investment, as I said. And we have such activities in many African countries. Well, let me come to you, Dr. Julian, because you wrote a very interesting uh, uh, article in The Star, the one titled Preserving Africa's Heritage. And here you argue that uh, uh, those who actually are really maintaining the research aspect of things should share findings to counter the threats posed by pseudoscientists. Uh, also, the issue of who actually initiates the history, the storytelling behind Africa's heritage itself. From your perspective, tell us a little bit about what you were actually bringing forth to the table when it comes to this heritage conversation on the African continent. So, uh, good morning. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. So, um, yes, I think there is a there is a real problem, uh, a real issue, uh, especially on social media and internet, um, about about what is said and what is believed of the the African uh, heritage, and especially when it comes to to great buildings, monuments such as the 
the Giza pyramid uh, in Egypt or in South Africa. There, there are the, the Kony circles in Pumalanga, which are which are also the object of crazy theories about uh, how they were built by extraterrestrials or other type of uh, supernatural beings. And one one can think that this could be harmless because these people are very few and they don't. They, I mean, they are not filling the public space. Uh, sure. They are not filling the public space. But mm. um, but when once you look on internet and especially on social media, they are very active. And actually, you realize that there are a lot of them, and they are really powerful. They are gathering a lot of money. For example, the using crowdfunding, and mm. there are crowdfunding pages that gathers the equivalent of uh, um, several million rands mm, mm. to fund mm. pseudo-scientific research. Mm. Uh, and this pseudo-scientific research, uh, so f- why are they dangerous? Because first they are destructive. So you have this example in 2014 of people breaking into the Giza pyramids and uh, taking samples, so what they call samples, which is actually breaking the, the breaking a cartouche, which is a painting inside the the pyramid mm. to analyze it with brackets. Oh. Um, so this is one example, and so this is directly a threat to mm. the heritage, and this is indirectly a threat for awareness, the people's awareness of their own heritage, because these guys come in foreign country they they are mostly westerners mm. and they come in foreign country they mm. don't know anything about and they have all these crazy stories about how the people there were too so, sorry for the word but were too primitive to build such greatness mm. such monuments mm. and so they, they they just take away the merit of the people and mm. their ancestors mm. they mm. they take away the awareness that yeah your your people is capable of greatness your people mm built something great out mm. of devotion to, mm. a, to a greater cause, like a king, for example. They, mm. they, be, they build these monuments out of their courage and mm. out of their ingenuity, too. Mm. And so by doing this, people who believe that aliens uh, built pyramids and so on, mm. they, they are just taking away the merit Mm. of the people and they are taking away their their memory and as you say their heritage well i'm gonna come to you hazel um it's very interesting in terms of what uh, dr julian is highlighting there because what's interesting for me is that contestation of who owns what who owns the heritage knowledge and also in terms of the adaptation of uh, african heritage because we've seen that becoming such a big problem especially what uh, dr julian benoit is highlighting there in aspects of of, uh, who actually is actually importantly uh, should uh, be owning this uh, uh, this heritage itself, and who actually should be responsible for how that heritage is appropriated? Tell us a little bit from a conservation perspective. I know you coming from a different angle here. Yes. Good morning to everyone and to yourself. Thank you so, for um, inviting us to this. I think the, the uh, Julian, let me just uh, bring in Hazel. Just wait for me a little bit. Uh, I know okay. that you can't hear her. Hazel. Just uh, uh, can I can hear you now. Just give us your thoughts. We'll come back to you, uh, Doctor Pinoa. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Hazel. Good morning, and thank you for inviting us to this conversation. It's uh, nice to be with you this morning. Um, we are indeed. Um, approach heritage from a completely different angle. Mm. 
Um, conservation is uh, belongs within the physical sciences. And um, from what I can gather, we've been speaking about to this point, um, we're looking more at the um, humanities as far as heritage goes, in other mm. words, its significance, um, who owns it, as mm. you said, who's mm. responsible for it. Um, the, the physical intervention in the deterioration of materials, man-made materials, is the conservation, um, heritage conservation in that sense, uh, comes to light. We focus, for instance, on w the way material deteriorates mm. and um, then how to reinstate that. Mm. But perhaps what we can bring to this, um, this discussion is just that once the significance of heritage physical man-made heritage has been determined, mm. the um, preservation of that is obviously the next step. And um, the, I think that the persons who are most affected by that material, in mm. other words, if it is your own personal um, history that mm. is involved in that, mm. then I think those, those persons or those cultures and sometimes in, our in, the, in the case of our country, our nation then becomes involved collectively. So I think there are different levels. And you mentioned earlier when you introduced the subject, you said that it is a complex subject. Mm. And I think it's because there are various levels at which it is um, important. Um, we work a lot in the built environment. Mm. and you would understand that a well-maintained and well-preserved historic building has a lot more impact on the society and the people that either work or live in it and mm. around it. Mm. And in that sense, the, the physical preservation is um, significant as far as making an area or a place or an environment attractive. Mm. Well, I'm going to take a quick break. I need to pause a little bit so we can just uh, really review some of the issues that we've highlighted after the break. If you just join us today, we're speaking about the importance of uh, the preservation of Africa's heritage and also what does it actually mean? How do we take heritage from an African context uh, forward? We join in our studios by uh, Swahibu Avarisu, who is the head of partnership at the African World Heritage Fund. Also, Hazel Boeta just spoke, uh, who is the head of Conversation Conservation at the South African Institute of Heritage uh, Sciences. Dr. Julian Benoit is also joining us on the line. Uh, he is a postdoctoral fellow uh, at the Evolutionary Studies Institute, part of Wits University. And also, I think we've got a jam-packed show today, so we'll try to see if we can fit in all the views. And uh, we'll be joined after our break by Professor Siraj Rasool, who is also uh, from the Department of History at the University of the Western Cape. The historical elements are also important as well. Let's see if we can fit everyone in in the next few minutes uh, that are left of the program. Let's take a quick break first. The third annual Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum Conference takes place in Cape Town, South Africa. The two-day event from the 5th to the 6th of October promises to ignite fundamental changes in Africa's socio-economic landscape. Channel Africa will be there to bring you the happenings live. Join us as we and the Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum 
push forward the economic empowerment of women who have historically been sidelined and disregarded in predominantly patriarchal and tribal societies. Listen to Channel Africa on the 5th and the 6th of October. Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, giving you that African perspective. Uh, remember, you can listen to us by streaming online on www.channelafrica.co.za. What does the heritage of the continent actually mean? How do we preserve it? How do we make sure that actually we capitalize on the richness uh, that we've inherited, as was highlighted by uh, Mr. Varisu earlier on, that uh, heritage is something that we've inherited from those who've come uh, before us. But uh, let me quickly move on to Professor Siraj Rasul, because he's coming from a historical perspective when it comes to heritage and we've been speaking about the definition of it but from a historical perspective I know that um, the misappropriation as we were talking with uh, Dr. Julian Benoit the fact that uh, a lot of people are arguing the origins also of the heritage that we have on the African continent it's a big argument and there's a lot of uh, as was highlighted by the doctor pseudoscientists who've come to the forefront and actually said South Africa I mean Africa in itself was too primitive to have actually created pyramids. Uh, there's that kind of colonial view of uh, Africa's uh, uh, heritage. Uh, uh, Professor Rasul? Yes, thank you very much. Um, I also direct the African Program in Museum and Heritage Studies at sure. the University of the Western Cape, yeah, awesome. which has trained, uh, been the most important site for training in the heritage sector on the continent. And as you have uh, pointed out, one of the most serious questions that we've had to pay, face is legacies of colonialism in how our very museums are structured, how artifacts are classified, and where mm-hmm. artifacts are held in mm-hmm. different parts of the world. And addressing questions of colonialism involves not only thinking about how objects have been stolen or unethically acquired for the benefit of people in Europe, in European uh, societies. But we also have to think about uh, the disciplinary environments in which material culture has been held. Mm. And it's been very interesting in a society such as South Africa, which has always almost been a kind of a laboratory mm-hmm. of how you create democratic heritage institutions. Sure, sure. And so the previous classificatory division between the so-called civilized and the so-called uncivilized, between the people deemed to be with history and the people deemed to be without history, a classificatory division between cultural history and ethnography has had to be done away with at Iziko Museums of South Africa where this week they have been holding special seminars on how you go through a process of decolonizing museums. Mm. And so we mustn't only think about how we preserve the heritage, Mm. but we have to think about how we critically engage with the intellectual systems that surround Mm. heritage sites and heritage objects. And the kinds of interpretive institutions we create and whether those institutions promote democratic engagement 
with those collections or those sites. Because one of the other problems that we have is this unfortunate tendency for great, a greater and ever in a, 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 a deepening degree of centralization mm-hmm. in the status management of heritage institutions. We unfortunately, we have lost the sense that we began with in the early 2000s of managing heritage institutions through arm's length length governance. Mm. And so unfortunately, what you have through the declaration of world heritage, through the declaration of national heritage, and through the idea that national heritage institutions are agencies of the state, is you ironically have a reduction in the democratic character of those institutions well, as they merely become service sure. providers mm. for the state. Well, that's interesting that you highlight that because uh, that seems to be the big challenge. And I, that restructuring of those particular systems that you highlight there, uh, Professor Rasul. And, and let me bring that to you, Mr. Varisu, in the studio in terms of that management is something that seems very complex, especially changing the narrative of what their the heritage stands for, because uh, uh, it was seen pr- primitively in the colonial times. African heritage has always been seen from a primi- uh, primitive and slavery perspective, and not only from uh, in terms of from a perspective where we are seen as uh, a people of kingdoms and of rulers and people who can assert themselves as part of uh, the dynamism of this world. Something is okay. Yes, you are. You are quite right. But I think until uh, Africans themselves take care of their own heritage, nothing will happen. Mm. You have uh, in many African countries traditional knowledge, for instance. I can give the example of uh, Secret Forest, where you have a number of knowledge, know-how that. Uh, uh, help to conserve and to give value to those places. You have a forest, for instance, in Kenya that we call Kaya Forest that is managed by elders and it's that knowledge that then was outstanding and then it was it reached a certain standard. Even this year you have Kromani, a cultural landscape Mm -hmm. here in Mm -hmm. South Africa. Mm -hmm. That is an outstanding place. It Mm -hmm. was so outstanding in terms of knowledge or how the Omani people manage that place, that the whole world know about it. Mm. What I'm trying to say is that it's still the responsibility of Africans to take care of their heritage, to engage with it, give value to it, and then give it the right standard. And it's, it's possible. I know that at uh, African Union level, there is that uh, charter for cultural renaissance. Mm, mm. And uh, from that charter, a number of uh, dynamics were created in Africa to see our share values. And I think it's only through the share values that we have in Southern Africa, Southern region, for instance, that mm. we can consolidate mm. our common heritage and thus maybe the future for us. Dr. Benoit, are we organized enough to ensure that we do have that capacity? Do we have the abilities for Africans themselves, uh, looking from your perspective, to adequately manage uh, these uh, heritage systems uh, on the African continent? So I think uh, I think the key is, is really education. Uh, it's education. If we have to, to educate 
the young generation to know their heritage and to love their heritage. And if if we leave this education to to internet, mm. then everything will be lost. Uh, and I mean, internet is is that the the freeway of information, but it's also the freeway of the information. Uh, and we. I think we, we have to rely more on the education system, schools and universities and uh, academics, but, uh, and also, as uh, emphasized previously, on popular knowledge, popular culture, um, which means people have to talk to each other, basically, to about the, the, the heritage. Um, because th this is... I mean, uh, if you leave the... Your, the, the management of your heritage to another country, then they will politicize this this heritage. It, um, and it, uh, I mean, during the the previous regime, like for example, the Great Zimbabwe and Mapungubwe, where which are two very important archaeological sites uh, that testifies to the great civilizations that were on the on the in southern Africa. The these sites were. I mean, the, the, they were interpreted by the previous government in a way that was supporting their vision of the world. And if you leave someone, and that's what happens when you leave someone else, uh, when you leave mm -hmm. your heritage mm -hmm. to someone else to interpret it. Mm -hmm. So people have to really, we, we as academics have to educate people and help people to be aware of what they, they have, of the, the greatness of their heritage. Well, I'm going to take a quick break and we're going to come back to you, Hazel. Uh, we're going to let go of Dr. Julian Benoit, the postdoctoral fellow from the Evolutionary Studies Institute at the Wits University. But we'll carry on with Professor uh, Seraf Rasul and Siabu Virasu, who is joining us in our studios after this break. It's 11.33 Central African time. Remember, you can interact with us on our social media at Channel Africa One and at African Dialogue. want to hear your thoughts, what you think of this conversation. How do we actually monetize heritage? How do we make sure that me and you, ordinary people, are actually benefiting from uh, what we actually have seen being passed over from those who come before us? Let's take a quick break. You're still listening to Channel Africa. This is African Dialogue. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English. Giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. Today we're speaking about a heritage. We started it. It's very complex. It sounds very, very simple from uh, just an eye level. But when you look deeper into Africa's heritage, you see that it's an industry all by itself. There's a lot in it that can actually be used to, to develop uh, the African continent. Let me come back to you, Hazel, in terms of some of these issues that we're speaking about, managing conservation, making sure that uh, as countries, 
countries, we are actually the ones who are responsible for our own uh, uh, heritage. That's something that's very important, as was highlighted before we let Dr. Benoit go there, highlighting that it's very important for a country itself to manage its own uh, conservation and uh, its own preservation of that. Yes, I think that um, it is important, you know, the issues that have been raised, but when we have, when these have all run their course, we hope that there are some objects that remain still, because ultimately the physicality of the site, the building, the materials, even the small movable objects is a reality, and that stays with us um, constantly. If we neglect to look after the physical well-being mm. of those materials, they will be lost. And as we speak, deterioration and degradation happens. Um, we know that also the human impact through um, uh, uh, just vandalism, even neglect over de- uh, mm. decades, mm. destroys that which you can use. And they were speaking of monetizing heritage. Mm. It is important that if you want people to appreciate your heritage, to understand what it represents, particularly if it, if it represents intellectual, artistic achievement, that that is preserved. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we mustn't lose uh, our, you know, if, if, if we want to draw the general public, if we want to draw interest from other parties, we need to have something attractive um, there for them to see, mm. and it needs to be obvious to them that it matters to the people whom it represents. Mm. And for that to be obvious, we need to maintain the the, the physicality of it. Mm. Um, let me, let, me, let me move it to Professor Rasul because you highlight something very important, Hazel, but let me take it to the professor in terms of that. You know, like two years or so, I went to uh, an, an energy conference in, in Paris and uh, just in between, I had the opportunity just to walk around and heritage is so important in Paris. It's very much highlighted. It's obvious. It's very there. It's not something that's in the backdrop or something that the country doesn't actually take seriously. The museums are taken seriously. The church buildings are taken seriously it seems like it is central to the economy of that particular city itself we need to start thinking like they're changing our seriousness and the way we we see uh, heritage not just as a country but as a continent don't we yes this is an enormous opportunity for us to to think about uh, um, all aspects of our heritage in more complex ways and in more serious ways um, we need we need a lot of training. We need professional capacity, and not only professional capacity that is able to nominate sites for world heritage listing, but capacity that is able to attend to the everyday management of heritage resources. That is able to think about how to create new museums. That is that is able to manage heritage sites and to be able to do so in ways that is attentive to the knowledge and the interests of local communities, that does not merely involve an imposition of expertise, mm-hmm. and to, also to be able to do it in a way that, it, that, is, that makes claims, that makes the correct kind of claims. Sure, sure. Because as we have declared the, 
Khomani landscape, a World Heritage Site, mm. we still live with the fact that there are illegally acquired human remains from that landscape, mm. from people who lived on that landscape that mm. lie in museums in Europe that were illegally exported from South Africa. There are still items of rock engravings illegally chopped out of the earth and exported to museums in Europe. Mm. And so those very celebrated museums in Europe that you refer to often have collections that have been unethically acquired. Sure. And so we have an opportunity to make the claims and to be able to ensure that our heritage is not only properly cared for, but that we do so in a way that understands what the problems are. So that Robben Island is mm. not just a tourist site, sure. but it is a museum that has to care for the memories of ex-political prisoners on mm. that island. And mm does not subject it merely to tourism. And where we take a landscape such as District 6, we have to realize that it is not just a land for uh, the development of housing and land restitution or for commercial development or for the development of facilities for an education institution, but that it is primarily a landscape of memory where mm. people suffered as, sure. they were, as they've been removed. So I would agree with you that we need to begin to take heritage in South Africa far more seriously. Let's come to you, uh, Mr. Varisu, in terms of that seriousness. I love adapting things to the ordinary person, and I think we can also kind of uh, assimilate to heritage from an everyday perspective and take advantage of it. And we've seen it uh, more Africans in terms of their music from a cultural perspective, in terms of fashion. We've started seeing African indigenous patterns becoming kind of a mainstream in international fashion. And just the ordinary me and you can actually take advantage of it and use it as a resource just to actually become more entrepreneurial even. Yes, you you are quite right. I think uh, uh, the day-to-day behavior that we can have as a heritage practitioner or someone who is enjoying or using heritage is key that uh, first we take the we get used to the fact that we go just to visit our heritage places, if we are talking about places. It's important that, for instance, we use the way we dress, you know, our cloth, heritage cloth. We shouldn't wait for September or 24th of September <laughs> before wearing our traditional cloth. Or a traditional cloth. wedding. Yeah, for <laughs> me, yeah. It should be our day-to-day sure. show. Mm. You know, so that we could also create market yeah, and then yeah, create yeah, yeah. resources to those people mm. who are working hard to create craft, to create traditional clothing and things like that. I'm quite happy here in South Africa where Sun Park, for instance, declare that all parks will be uh, access free mm, uh, mm. for a certain weekend mm, for mm, South mm, Africans. Mm, mm. I think each of us should take that opportunity to go mm. and also see wildlife because mm. it's free. Mm. Go and enjoy. Use mm. your heritage. Mm. Take care for that and mm. then the last thing that I can say is that it's also key for government to get more serious about putting money in heritage. Mm. Most of African countries, you will remember that 
development of cultures are mm. already the poorest. Mm. And that's mm. also a, a key problem. Mm. When those departments need resources to take care of what we are talking of, mm. but also private sector must come on board. And you and me, mm. we can also contribute. Mm. We just uh, have a fundraising event in Namibia okay. with the former president of Namibia, mm. Poamba, who okay. really try and put his weight to to mobilize a number of mm, private mm. sector actors. So we can do the same thing here in South Africa, bring more people on board, because mm. once again, as long as we don't get the critical mass mm. in terms of using heritage, mm. eating it, mm. and also supporting it, sure. it will be difficult for Africa and for South Africa, of course, to take full mm. advantage of the richness and the amazing richness mm. that we have in tangible and tangible heritage. Mm. Hazel, let me come to you and give you the final say just in a minute or two. Give us your insights in terms of how serious we should be starting taking heritage. I don't think we actually see that it is actually uh, it is kind of this uh, potential there. There's a lot of, I love the idea of financial uh, explorations that we haven't even uh, uh, ventured into when it comes to conservation, when it comes to our history, history our archives. It's so broad on the African continent. Just in South Africa, it's huge, huge, huge. How more seriously should we take it in your view, Hazel? Um, I think that a person should always, uh, one should keep in mind that an individual is essentially lost without the knowledge of where they belong and how they fit in it gives you, it orientates your entire day-to-day activity to understand and, and um, live with knowledge that your heritage is mm. um, recognized. And as far as the, it's inspirational to people, so you, you would imagine that someone who feels comfortable, that they are recognized, that the heritage is visible, mm, mm. and that it is something that is different to another person's heritage, mm-hmm. that is all, uh, it affects the way you think, how creative you are about um, just deploying yourself mm-hmm. within your society. That's a little bit of, um, uh, you know, if you think of someone such as the persons who were um, uh, forcefully removed from District 6, mm-hmm. the, the big problem over there is they became disorientated because they were taken away from a place where they understood everything mm. and they were surrounded by buildings that they grew up in, that the, the grandmothers and grandfathers were, and they belonged. Mm. You take that away and it creates within the person a sense of disorientation. So the importance of preserving heritage, the physical heritage, is in order that society can function in a healthy manner and that we can work together to achieve um, better outcomes for our children and for our children's children and that is then drawn through the physical preservation of of heritage and well Hazel we have to leave it there sorry to cut you off uh, but I understand that sentiment that you're making that also has a lot to do with the identity and also just the psycho uh, 
space or way how we identify with the world. Thank you to Hazel Boeta, the head of conservation at the South African Institute for Heritage Sciences. Thank you, uh, Suyabu, for coming into our studios and gracing us with your presence. It's been fantastic having here. He's the head of partnership at the African World Heritage Fund. Professor Siraj Rasul, thank you as well uh, for giving us your time. Let's quickly move on and get our business news. And we've got Wissani Matebula standing by for that. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. Thanks, Benjamin. Good afternoon. Our offshore funds in Nigeria have offered to sell the U.S. dollar at uh, close to its black market rate, worsening a liquidity lull on the foreign exchange market. The funds, which uh, shifted dollars into the market last week to buy Naira as treasury bills, offered to sell the U.S. Uh, currency close to the black market rate. Sitle Zuma has more. Investor transactions totaled 102.75 million US dollars on Tuesday, down from 125 million US dollars on Monday, and from 131 million US dollars on Friday. Domestic buyers said they were expecting the local currency to firm as foreign funds piled into cheap Naira assets. In April, the central bank allowed investors to trade the Naira at rates determined by the market. The move was intended to improve dollar supply, but it introduced a new exchange rate on top of the five already coming up Nigeria's currency system. I'm Sihezuma reporting for Channel Africa in Johannesburg. And Tunisia plans to cut its budget deficit to 4.9% of gross domestic product next year, down from about 6% expected this year. Dumelo Zulu has more. The Minister of Economic Reforms, Taufik Raji, says next year's budget would be a budget of major reforms that were delayed, including fiscal reforms aimed at raising state resources, as well as reforms in the public sector. Raji said that Tunisia's financing needs next year will be about 4.1 billion US dollars. He says foreign loans are expected to reach about 65% of the country's total financing. Meanwhile, government is expected to face opposition from trade unions and some professions, such as lawyers who have threatened to go on strike if taxes rise. And so South Africa announcing a new black economic empowerment scheme to replace its failed INZALO discounted share scheme, which is due to mature next year after a 10-year run. The company's joint CEO, Bungani Mwababa. Inzalo was premised on, on, on a share price that based on share price growth, you would then uh, base, sell the shares and then pay off the debt. But uh, as, as you know, the oil price has come down quite uh, significantly from over $100 when it was uh, set up in 2008. Now the oil price is around uh, $55. We are proactively saying we need to set up a structure which is linked to the cash flows of the company, not the vagaries of, 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 of the market. Financial indicators now. The dollar trading at 13.28 South African rands, 10.08 Botswana Pula, 9.55 Zambian Guacha, also trading at 0.73 to the British pound and 0.83 against the euro. 
The commodities market gold a thousand three hundred and fourteen dollars, platinum nine hundred and forty six dollars per fine ounce, Brent crude oil fifty six dollars seventy two cents per barrel. And that's how it's looking right now. Well, it's time for us to get our sports. Uh, we've got Fila Lingwat, who's annoying us with his K's Achieves uh, top here jersey. Uh, just because they won doesn't mean that it'll continue like that, Figile. So be away. We want to see continuity in your team, man. Okay, let's get the update uh, on our sports. In a sports update, this hour we begin with football news. Bafana Bafana head coach Stuart Baxter has appealed to the national and the media to give him time to address the disciplinary problems and allege the misbehavior within his side. This follows media reports on allegations of unruliness that happened in the Bafana camp following the 2-1 loss to Cape Verde in a World Cup qualifier in Devon earlier this month. Baxter promises to deal with players who reportedly partied hard at a Bafana hotel. There's been reports about indiscipline, there's been reports about uh, bad behaviour. Many of those reports are wildly exaggerated and or hugely inaccurate. I just want to be as open as I can and put this one to bed. Now, I'm guessing that every code in this country has had this sort of problems. Now... That overstepping the mark has probably been going on for about 60, 70 years. And I've had 10 sessions with this, with this group. So allow me a little bit more time with this group and I'll make sure that the players that represent the country don't think it's acceptable to overstep the mark. World football's governing body, FIFA President Gianni Infantino says football institutions have the responsibility to tackle the transfer system. This after UEFA President Alexander Seferin called on European leaders to help on the implementation of measures which could reduce the gap between the rich and the poor clubs on the continent. And this on its own is not necessarily something negative because it's also, it also means redistribution. But on the other side, uh, we have also witnessed, witnessed that the commissions of agents are increasing and at the same time the solidarity payments and the training compensations are decreasing. And this is something that has to worry us, certainly, not only a little bit, but quite a lot. And in golf news, plans to turn the Soweto Country Club into one of the best golf facilities in the country has received a major boost. This after Sunshine Tour along with the city of Johannesburg in South Africa pledged their commitment towards refurbishing the club. This includes the refurbishment of the golf course, building of a new clubhouse, new practice facility and a fence along two boundaries of the golf course. The good news did not end there for the Soweto Golf Club. The facility is expected to hold the Jobek Open Pro-M. Selvin Nathan Sunshine Tour CEO also disclosed that this year's Jobek Open will move from Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club to Renpark Golf Club.
Well, it's the first South African tournament on South African shores that Strauss actually We have the week before the Joburg Open this year, we'll play in Mauritius, which will be the tri-sanction event that we've been running over the last few years. So the real excitement is that Louis Gustais and Sebi's playing. We're going to a new venue for the final year of this country. We're hoping to put up an, a, a most amazing event that the, the mayor, the city, uh, everybody involved is going to see what a great platform golf is. Finally, tennis news. Wheelchair Tennis South Africa, WTSA, has announced the return of the 9th International Tennis Federation, the ITF, Johan Cruyff, Africa Junior Camp at the Arthur Ashe Tennis Center in Jabavu, Soweto, south of Johannesburg, from the 30th of September to the 2nd of October. This camp is to continue the development of future wheelchair tennis champions. The Johan Cruyff Foundation, named after the legendary Dutch footballer, was founded in 1997 with the aim of giving children the opportunity to play and be active. That's the Sport News this hour. Right, that's how we wrap it up and uh, thank you for joining us here on uh, African Dialogue that's how we say goodbye we'll be back next week Monday and until then uh, God bless